Hey gang, this is Aaron. In just a moment, you're going to hear me discussing a couple of movies with Adam Stovall, the writer-director of A Ghost Waits, which hits Blu-ray and VOD on May 4th. Now, I saw this movie back in February, and I'm a big fan. I'm really excited to help spread the word about it. Let me tell you a little bit about what the movie is first. Tasked with renovating a neglected rental home, handyman Jack quickly finds out why the tenants keep leaving in droves. The house is haunted. The ghost in question is Muriel, herself employed from beyond the veil to keep the home vacant. Against the odds, Jack and Muriel find they have a lot in common, pulse notwithstanding. Having found a kindred spirit in an otherwise lonely existence, they must fight for their newfound affection as pressure mounts for them each to fulfill their cross-purposes. The movie's been a pretty big hit. It was part of the Arrow Player's Big Push launch earlier in the year. It's been getting great reviews everywhere, and I'm a big fan myself. I thought it was an utterly charming film. Now, if you want to watch the movie, if you have the Arrow Player already, it is streaming there. However, it will be on Blu-ray and DVD on the 4th, which is just a few days after this episode is coming out. If you're listening to it in the future, it's already out. Go get a copy. I think Adam said it's going to be about $3 for digital rental at most outlets. But also, for two lucky listeners, I have a pair of Blu-rays to give away. There are a couple different ways you can enter. The first, give us a follow on Twitter, at TwoHeadedPod. And quote retweet the contest announcement to be entered. You have to do both. You have to follow at TwoHeadedPod and retweet. Now, the second method, if you do not have Twitter... Simply leave us a review wherever you get this podcast. Then send me a screenshot of you leaving the review. You can send that either to twoheadedpod at gmail.com or at twoheadedpod on Twitter. Leave us an honest review. Of course, I'd be happier if they were all five stars, but I'm not about to ask you to throw away your standards for a shot at a free movie. So it's just as easy as that. A winner will be chosen from all entries received by 11.59 p.m., on Friday the 7th. That's Pacific Standard Time. So there's just over a week, a week and a day to enter. Now, without further ado, my conversation with Adam. Well, some I do. Gotta get that theme song in here first. everybody welcome back to another week i hope you lasted okay during our little break i mean it was only a week i only took one week off so probably nobody even noticed uh but we're back now and i'm really excited we've got a really great guest today i'm really excited to talk to him so without further ado i'm gonna introduce right now uh everybody welcome adam stovall the director of a ghost waits which will be coming out on DVD, Blu-ray, video on demand in just a couple of days. It's been on the Arrow app, which if you're listening to the show, you've heard me talk about uh, plenty of times before how much I love the app. But uh, anyway, I'm down, I'm rambling now. Let's just say hello to Adam. Hi, everybody. Hey. <laughs> uh, like I said, you've got a movie that's that's been out for a little while, but it's making its physical media debut. And I believe the on-demand elsewhere other than Arrow, right? Like it'll be on rentable on yeah Apple and stuff um, like that. it's it's basically what they call tvod which is transactional video on demand and it's like itunes amazon like non-prime just like the movies you can rent on amazon um 
uh, you know, Voodoo, yeah, like all those sites. We are, uh, we're really hoping people will rent it on iTunes and pre-order. It's only $3 there. And if we can get everybody to do that like first week, it will actually help us uh, help the movie have legs beyond this and maybe get on something like Netflix and yeah, whatnot. Well, I should, yeah. I should say the movie is a ghost waits. I don't know if I said that. Uh, it, it's on Arrow. It is a ghost. Arrow player. And I watched it uh, when it premiered a, a couple months ago now, right? Time February has no first, meaning yeah. anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I watched it. I really enjoyed it. I told a couple of friends and I know Thank they've you. they've watched it and said it, they enjoyed it. If anybody is listening to this, regularly the show you're i recommend this movie i it's hard to recommend the movie things it's hard to recommend things to people you don't know but if you listen to my show i believe you will enjoy this i think everybody should go and uh i mean money is tight maybe you know rent it but i'm three dollars it's yeah. just a three dollar rental that's it's, it it's, <laughs> it's a great bang for your buck at that three dollars i'm i was just telling you that i i'm pre-ordering the blu-ray which looks lovely Thank you. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, the movie is great. I was really, really excited. to. I started following you on Twitter and then you just kind of put out that you're like, you would like to talk about this movie. And I'm, I'm really glad I took the chance to uh, reach out because I enjoyed the movie a lot. And I would, I, I thought I'd really like to get to talk to you and we've had one chat already and it seemed to go, okay, <laughs> we're doing another one now and we're going to talk about a couple of movies. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you liked the movie and I'm glad that you wanted to reach out. Um, you know, we made this, A, a Ghost Waits is a very small movie. We made it for less than the cost of a base level Mercedes. Uh, you know, I used to say less than a car cost, but a Kia costs less. But yeah, like, and when you do that, I mean, I spent five years for this movie. We spent five years making this movie. And that time it was just like a project on my laptop. It's just a thing. It doesn't feel like a real movie. It's just this thing that my friends and I did. Um, and then when we screened our North American premiere at Scream Fest out in LA in October, uh, which they they managed to do an in-person festival by making it a drive-in, um, sitting there in the car watching the movie, it was the first time it felt like a movie and not a project, which was oh, amazing. Yeah. 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 Um, but so, yeah, like it, my, my, a friend of mine's a, a film critic back in Cincinnati. And he said like, you know, he talks to all these filmmakers when he goes to these festivals and they, you know, it's like, I never really get the sense that they, you know, maybe it's just a question of scope, but like, they don't have their thumbprints as heavily on everything. And it's like, well, yeah, usually you have a support you know, <laughs> staff, you have people doing stuff, but like, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. So I edited the film and you know I, I wrote it uh mcleod ended up coming on board as a as a writer kind of in in pickups uh because we were reconceiving kind of the, the opening act of the movie um because originally it really didn't work at all um or at least the beginning didn't work the ending was always good the endings would like told us that we had a movie um but yeah i like taught myself to edit to uh, in order to edit the movie and you know mcleod taught himself how to do sound design to do the sound design and mm -hmm. you know it's really like the the fact that um not even the success just like the sheer existence of the movie is a testament to willpower and friendship <laughs> oh that's great i i really enjoy hearing that because it, it is kind of the movie i used to describe it when i talked to people or the movie i used the word i used to describe it was almost always charming 
like that was somewhere in the description i think the movie is very charming um it is kind of a uh, for people who who aren't familiar with the movie it is kind of a a, a ghost romance do you, mm-hmm. do you mind giving that much away it, like it, it's kind of a, a ghost story romance. oh yeah absolutely um uh, it, it it is it's really funny. We've had this conversation like so many times over the last few years where it's like, do we say that it's a romance? And it's like, if we don't, people will be up. Like if, if people go in expecting like a straight horror film, like they're going to be very disappointed uh, <laughs> you know, because this movie turns hard into like romance territory. Um, yeah. You know, uh, and part of that's just like, I didn't grow up a horror kid. I grew up a comedy nerd, uh, had an awareness of horror, but it was very simple and very incomplete. And it wasn't until my thirties that uh, a friend started like sitting me down and like, you, you need to watch sisters um, <laughs> you know, and stuff. So like, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely our, per- you know, McLeod and I like our, it's our personality of like, there is like life has horrific shit to it, but it also like, you know, sometimes you get to meet the like, the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. And sometimes you, you know, sometimes you find purpose and sometimes you don't. And that felt like a thing because we didn't have any money. It's like, okay, well, we can't afford effects. We can't afford, you know, all these like bells and whistles, but honestly, to my, to my, to, to my, to me, the greatest effect is the human face. So it was just like, let's just try to make the most compelling story and you know we can kind of wrestle with stuff that does isn't going to cost us anything. <laughs> that is McLeod. McLeod is McLeod Andrews, just for, yes. for people listening, who plays your uh, your main character of Jack. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it is kind of a the movie is pretty much a two hander. Uh, there's some other characters that come and go, but both of them are really great. They're really likable in this movie. Um, you say people would be upset about it going in if they they didn't know it, it turned into romance. Um, I knew nothing about it. I, I mean, Arrow plastered this everywhere on Twitter. Yeah. And if you use the app, like it was just like there on the, the splash screen right away. Um, so I saw a lot about it. I got pretty excited for it. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm really excited to see this movie. I've never heard anything about. Yeah. I consciously decided not to read anything. I didn't look, I didn't know anything about it. They, they just said it was a DIY production. And I was like, okay, I'm in. And I watched it. And so I was surprised by where it went yeah but i i like i said i said called it charming it it was delightful i really i i like your characters so much and they're they're both really likable in the movie and um i thought it was really funny some of some of the places the movie went so i i knew nothing about it and i was fine i mean maybe not everybody's gonna be like that people that have horror streaming apps maybe they're gonna expect a certain thing but uh yeah the movie is great We've had remarkable luck in terms of the response to the movie, but like there have been some, some, uh, some bad reviews. Yeah, well. And, but like for the most part, the bad reviews are, you know, I just didn't care for this. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, some were just like, you know, um, I think, I, I think I remember one thinking that it was a bit amateurish, um, which like yeah there's moments of janky camera work like uh there was one person that saw at the world premiere was just like i've never seen a movie like this like she's just accustomed to a degree of polish that we didn't have um you know but like we knew we didn't have it i and 
Ingmar Bergman's one of my favorite directors and was kind of a, a North star on this because I think Ingmar Bergman is like one of the best ever at doing simple, you know, like it's just a simple uh, setup, you know, but like people confuse simplicity with ease, you know, and it's like, no, 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 he's doing a lot or he was doing a lot, but he just doesn't want, he, you know, it's like anything that might get in the way of the message he takes out. And so that, I think that gave us the confidence to just focus on what we understood to be our strengths. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I, I get that. I mean, not, not everything is for everybody, but I don't think it would be fair at all to call this unpolished because I mean, it, I, I kind of don't want to just sit here and blow smoke up your ass and like really go <laughs> overboard about this m movie. But then again, like, I like to be enthusiastic. I mean, and mm -hmm. I enjoyed this movie, so why not? But um, I have covered movies on this podcast that look less professional than this. I have covered movies I love that look less professional than this. I think if anybody's going to call this unpolished or or call out any quote unquote, like to quote you, janky camera movements, they're they're really not that familiar with film. <laughs> like there's there are so many different ways to do things there there's i mean certainly especially like you think of like the indie boom in the 90s or, or yeah. you think of of even more recent stuff like tangerine which is like you just shot on an iphone and mm -hmm. um and still looks great like it, there is a spectrum to things it's not necessarily a hollywood production it's not glossy in that way I don't know. I think to a certain film, uh, like film fan, that they, they they do come for that rawness or that that kind of like unpolished aspect as well. Yeah, I was reading an interview with Ben Wheatley where he talked about. Um, he's like, I think when people don't like a movie, what what that means is it didn't do what I was expecting it to do, um, and in some cases, that's very you know small scale like this is how a story works and you didn't do that. So I don't like it. But then on a, a kind of a larger scale, just like a movie looks a certain way, it feels a certain way. Um, and there isn't as much kind of latitude given to, you know, all the different ways that a movie can look and feel. Um, and sometimes a movie just has to kind of take you out of yourself in order for, you know, like you might start out not liking something, and then it takes you on a journey and you kind of forget everything and you're like, Oh, in the end, in the end, I really liked that. But yeah, I, I think a lot of it is just like, especially these days, I think mo like modern film discourse is, um, it can be a little bit too beholden to like algorithmic thinking, you know, like I think a lot of people learned about game theory and decided that that should apply to everything. So, you know, their understanding of a movie is basically the save the cat beat sheet or, or something like that. Um, and yeah, that's going to close you off to a lot of really awesome, interesting stuff. And especially like something like parasite, which is, you know, is very narratively inventive. You know, it's also coming on, you know, after so many other films where we understand that Bong Joon-ho is, is a fascinating director, you know, some people might have been put off by the turns of that movie had they not gone in like, okay, this is, I, I am to respect this. I remember like when my mom saw Pulp Fiction, uh, cause I saw it 
before that and like it immediately became my favorite movie um and i watched it many times in the theater and then on v vhs and everything uh but i remember like my mom going to see it and seeing her come out of it out of the theater because i'd gone see something else and i was sitting in the lobby and seeing her face and she just looked betrayed <laughs> you know like how could like how could you love that and like now mom's like oh it's a classic i understand that it's a classic you know it's been explained throughout you know all these documentaries and everything it keeps coming up so she's like pulp fiction's a classic of american cinema i understand that but at the time was just like what the hell did you just make me watch <laughs> you know? oh, that's that's a fascinating dynamic <laughs> I'm very familiar with that sort of uh, <laughs> that that yeah, that sort of uh, oh my gosh I'm completely blank yeah I'm very familiar with that <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah I I personally I know what you're talking about like algorithmic thinking I when it comes to film I try to be very omnivorous I watch a lot of every genre every uh, every style. Um, I try to be really rounded. I try to watch a lot of world cinema. So personally, I kind of like come to every movie as in like I'm accepting the movie on its terms and I'm primed to like everything I'm watching. I never go into yeah. a movie thinking like, oh, this is going to be terrible. I go into <laughs> it thinking maybe maybe I won't love this, but I'm like, I'm hoping I like it. And so right. if you look at my letterbox, you might look at it and go like, well, this guy just likes everything. I'm like, well, one, I'm selecting the stuff that I watch. So yeah, I'm, I'm expecting to like it but also like why fight it i just like i love movies i love i love film and so like even in movies that i dislike it, it may be especially in movies i dislike i look for the things that i do like about them and i can always find a couple of things that i'm like that did this thing really well one thing i really um when i was a film journalist so i used to be with creative screenwriting magazine I started out as a contributing writer and by the end was a contributing editor, um, which was a lot of fun because I also like read that magazine for years before I got the chance to write for them. But um, once I was working there all the time, I was covering festivals and seeing, you know, between three and 400 movies in a year. And man, that would just make you want to burn down the three act structure <laughs> when you're just like watching movies constantly. And you're like, why is everything the same? And I think that was like a massive part of my film education. Um, and especially like in terms of the road towards being a filmmaker, um, because it, it, I remember the first time I wrote something, I've been, I've been writing screenplay since I was 20 years old and I was 32 or three when I finally wrote something that I was like, oh, this is exciting. You know, like not just having written a script, but like the script does a thing that I don't think anyone else is doing. It made me much more inventive with uh, narrative and time and whatnot. Um, but then, yeah, you start watching a lot of like world cinema and you start watching and just like, oh, like everybody's doing everything. Like, yeah, there's lots of crazy people in film that like they just don't make it to the multiplex. But like, go watch a Nacho Vigalondo movie. You're going to have a fun time. <laughs> agree you know like watch time crimes and don't learn anything about it beforehand just go in blind um that was actually know. my uh, uh not to interrupt my yeah. unreleased episode which was a test episode to see if i wanted to do the show was time crimes and nice. uh, infinite man was the other film i don't know if you've seen like, oh i haven't seen that it's an australian 
it, uh, it's only a three person cast. It is one guy has a horrible like anniversary with his, his girlfriend and he spends a year inventing a time machine to go back and kind of like fix that moment. And they get like infinite man, you know, the loops keep going, but it, I, I, that sounds really it. good. Yeah. It, it's very funny. It is very kind of sexually frank in a way an American movie wouldn't be like, it's not ex really in, it's not really like sexual, but there are scenes that you're like, Oh, this would not be in the American version of this. Um, yeah. But what I really okay. liked about it is that it, it turned out to be a sci-fi movie about emotional growth instead of just like the rules of how it all works. Like, if you oh like, shit! I have to watch this. That's like what I'm writing right now. Oh good. If you <laughs> yeah. if you want to watch it for the twists and turns, the movie gets really twisty, really crazy. But in the end, it is just about like a character growing. Um, okay. So I, I I recommend it. I liked it a lot. Uh, but that that That's I awesome. completely derailed what you were saying with that. I'm sorry. No no no. Who cares? This like <laughs> this is like this has been so cool about like pod like doing podcasts and talking to people. It was like I just have a list now of stuff to watch. Where I'm like I've never heard of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's fantastic. Um, it's no, it's fine. it's. <laughs> uh, that's fun. I yeah, I'm writing uh, a sci-fi script right now. It's like a time travel road movie with a bit of disaster movie in it. Oh, and yeah, and it's it's the hardest I've ever worked on a script, um, but it's also like the best thing I think I've written. Um, and McLeod is very excited. Uh, like I, I wrote a draft and I forgot to put a second act in it, so I'm fixing that and like going back <laughs> and fixing that. Um, Cause I think I finished that draft like early July last year and thinking like, okay, I'll send it out. I'll get some notes. And then like arrow, you know, emails like, Hey, we want to acquire the movie. And, you know, we, we negotiated for a while. And, and then what we didn't know was that like, they had already decided they wanted it to be their key title in February for the, the launch. Ghost we're talking about now. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, they, they Arrow had decided because they were launching Arrow Player on February one, and they wanted a Ghost Waits to be the key title because of Valentine's Day. So we took a while negotiating the contract, and then once it was finally done, they're like, "By the way, like everything needs to be done by this date." I'm like, oh shit! Yeah. So um, I had to just put everything else down. Um, fortunately, my day job also kind of quieted down with the with all this. I direct audiobooks. And there hasn't, studios haven't been open. So I worked exclusively on the bonus features and getting the movie ready and deliverables and all the stuff that I, we kind of probably never thought we'd have to deal with, to be honest. Uh, and then, um, so now that that's done and, you know, I, I have time again, I've been like, I took, I've, I've been kind of resting and recuperating and like watching some movies finally, because when you're making a movie, you have no time to watch other movies. Now I, I am, I'm, I think I'm almost up to like 70 on the year already, which is great. Um, but I'm writing. That's the, that's the point that I was getting to is I'm like finally able to start writing on this thing. And I've made like all, all these notes. I've like filled up a couple of notebooks with notes. And so like I was telling McLeod, I was like, I think everything's pretty much there. I just have to like write the page, which is, you know, not the easy part. No. Um, no, it's but, fun to like, it's fun oh, to just so, write down notes. <laughs> yeah. It, it's fun to just like come up like, oh, that'd be a cool idea. But actually like implementing it is the the hard Yeah. Part. Well, and you, you know, you come up with a good line. And what one thing I've learned is that like a good line has to be open to change. 
You know, like it has to be saying something interesting. It, just, it can't just be an interesting way of saying something. Um, and so like, yeah, there's all these notes and you do, you start kind of like, okay, you know, this character, like all, all of them go over here. And then you just start kind of finding a way that like does something interesting like in the scene and how these characters are processing it. And it's like, okay, well, what was that idea sparking? To what was that saying about them? Um, I like that this is now a podcast about a movie that does not exist. But it's the same thing with the ghost weights. You know, a ghost weights. We had the money before. I mean, it was a, again a very small budget. I but like we had the we had it before I written the script. So oh. I was writing by the seat of my pants, and you know, in the course of doing that, it was just like, well, I knew McLeod was going to be Jack. And I, we, we met on the set of another movie. He was acting in it and I was a second AD. And I always say like, that was another huge part of my film education was I got to watch where money goes. As a second AD, you have a front row seat to production. And so I got to watch where money goes and see where it goes out of habit versus to go. And I remember like McLeod and I having this very like existential conversation one day. And I was just like, what is a movie? You know, like, <laughs> what do we actually need? Okay, you need people to play a scene, a place in which them, in, in which uh, for them to play it, and then the materials with which to record that scene. And like, and that is it. Uh, anything else is an indulgence. <laughs> so that's how you make a movie for, you know, a low five figure budget. But yeah, like writing a ghost waits, the whole, like the main North star or one of the North stars was like, what's interesting. You know, when you're just getting up and writing, and especially if you're writing in the context of casting and uh, planning to the extent that we planned it all, um, you know, it was just like, okay, it's a ghost story. Uh, what's interesting about a ghost story? And you kind of start with what is kind of like written in stone about ghost stories. Um, very little, really, because it's all made up anyway. But, <laughs> you know, like I started with the idea that ghosts are caused by uh, unfinished business. That's like usually the, the, the story of a ghost is that there's something they never got to do. And uh, the original ending of A Ghost Waits was that Jack helped Muriel finish her business because that's what Jack does. He helps and fixes. And then Muriel was able to leave because that's what people do. They leave Jack. And that- oh, Poor Jack. Yeah. And then very quickly, I was like, you can't do that. Like <laughs> I told one friend and we were both just like, that's not a good ending. And, you know, it can be like, it's an ending. Like it's, it's not necessarily a bad one, but I knew I would want to make something that like felt transcendent. You know, I like a movie that takes me out of myself. I like a movie that like makes my heart grow. And that's such a small thing, you know, uh, that's such a small way of looking at the world that like, you know, I expect bad things to happen and so bad things happen. And what is the point of expecting good things to happen? Cause they never do. But like, um, and I kind of realized, and this will kind of get us into, I think our conversation, but like the way Guillermo del Toro uses ghosts, like speaks so much to, to my heart and what I love about story because they're, you know, it's a conversation with the past, you know, they're reminders and, especially like the devil's backbone, Santi is at first, you know, um, the kid's terrified, 
but like comes to learn that Santi's trying to tell him something. So, you know, like ghosts, are, I think Ebert said, you know, the thing this movie gets is that most ghosts are sad. You know, they're not trying to scare you. They just can't say what they're trying to say because we're terrified of them. And if you let go of that fear, what can happen? So, you know, and that was, that was obviously, that's a big part of a ghost waits. It's just like, I don't know. I, you know, it's about depression and anxiety, which are kind of the twin pillars of my life <laughs> for a very long time. And like it, the, one of the things about depression is that it completely reorients your, your poles to where you don't react to things the way other people do, you know, some, some, a surprising thing happens and somebody else might be, you know, surprised by it. And you're just like, yep, why not? Like nothing else makes sense. Why doesn't that? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, that, and that became something where it's like, okay, we can explore that. That's interesting. And so that was kind of like every day of writing was just what's interesting today. Yeah. Well, that does make a really great segue. So uh, I guess, I mean, I have so much I want to say about that and about ghosts, but also I, I kind of want to say that. We oh, we're just going to be all over the place. Side. It's fine. Yeah. So <laughs> how about uh, we, we've kind of, I mean, I don't know why I play coy with it. People see what the episode title is and they're going to know what we're talking about. So uh, it's just the way podcasts work, but we're talking about yeah. Guillermo del Toro. Specifically, we're talking the ghost stories of Guillermo del Toro. And so I guess let's just get right into the discussion. We can take a brief break here. When we come back out on the other side, we'll be talking about The Devil's Backbone. ¿Qué es un fantasma? ¿Quién suspira? Un evento terrible condenado a repetirse una y otra vez. Quedan diez lingotes más. No tienen padres. No tienen a nadie. Están desesperados de hambre. Mira cómo comen. Quedas ahí abajo. Algo muerto que parece por momentos vivo aún. Un granito de fuerza. Un granito de fuerza. Un sentimiento suspendido en el tiempo. ¿Y el fantasma dónde está? Llegó con la bomba. Como un insecto atrapado en ámbar. Vivís siempre pensando que había un tiempo después. No hay más tiempo, Carl. No hay un después. In 1939, in the final days of the Spanish Civil War, Carlos arrives at an unnamed orphanage in the middle of nowhere. The orphanage is full of children whose parents have died fighting Franco and his fascists, is run by Carmen and Dr. Casares, and has a large unexploded bomb in the courtyard and is haunted by he who sighs, the ghost of a young boy who died there. Now this was Guillermo del Toro's third feature film it was a return to Mexico after his disastrous experiences while making the movie Mimic for the Weinsteins, which we can get into a little of that, that in a bit. But um, let's kind of get into the discussion. This was your pick. Actually, kind of like it was your idea to do Del Toro because you said he was kind of a, you, 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 he was a little bit of an influence. You love him as a director, I think you said. Yeah. Um, and I certainly 
love del toro i i i adore his films and this was has been a favorite for a while but i haven't seen it in a few years so it's good to revisit what about this movie kind of spoke to you uh devil well specifically devil's backbone i remember watching it um i think i watched it in the lead up to making ghost weights i didn't watch a lot of ghost movies um in the lead up just because i, I was busy but I remember watching, it may have actually been like a year or so before when I was trying to work on another thing. But like, basically I remember watching Devil's Backbone and just like being blown away by how it felt. There's the tac- the, the tactile nature of like how he directs. Oh, definitely. Um, and especially in those early, you know, that Pan's Labyrinth, Kronos. Um, but like, yeah, Devil's Backbone, because he talks about Devil's Backbone being his like first real movie. And it is the first one where you can, you really get a glimpse of like his heart and like what he wants to do and say. Um, I actually, I'll be, I'll be honest. I have not seen Kronos. I, I thought I was like, Oh, this will give me an excuse to do that. And then the weekend got away from me and I didn't get to see oh, it. Oh yeah. I meant to watch, I meant to do a lot of watching in, in yeah. lead up to this and kind of had to fall away. But like, so immediately I remember like texting a friend of mine who was trying to produce something of mine saying like, can we shoot on film? Cause you just, you, you look at the image of devil's backbone and immediately it's just like, why don't movies look like this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but then, yeah, you get into the story and not only do I love the ghost story, the, the story of Santi and, and uh, everything, but like his ability to, and I'll say it's like not always so well done, but like the way he takes a political story and a personal story, like he is so, he, he's, he's, he's so appreciative of the nexus of uh, political and personal and how, you know, there is no personal without politics and there is no politics without person. Um, you know, the idea of resistance, the idea of uh, not being complicit, being a choice, uh you know that these are kids and that these are kids who have been abandoned and chances are none of them will be adopted because it's a civil war happening um but like the letters that like these letters are delivered to these kids and like oh my mom's getting better like the love that the 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 couple that runs the orphanage has for it and then also like keeping his uh Yacinto around who like clearly hates this orphanage and like everything gets into his life, but they can't close their hearts to him. And yeah, it's just, it's really beautiful emotional storytelling, which I feel like you don't get as often. Um, you know, especially these days, I think a lot of people are making movies because they grew up loving them. And so they just want to make a movie and they don't necessarily have something they want to say outside of, I really like movies. Um, Whereas Del Toro, like he always has something he wants to say, like even Pacific Rim, which is just giant monsters fighting giant robots. Like you have moments like the little girl, you know, watching everything kind of come down around her. And he like, you know, and Pacific Rim is probably his least human story, but it still has that humanity. It just, it's it's more like kind of scattershot, I think. Well, what makes Pacific Rim, and we're, we're not here to talk about that, but I, I, can't, I can't pass up the opportunity. 
yeah. what makes Pacific Rim work is that Del Toro is <clears throat> clearly entirely invested, maybe more invested and interested in building a world than he is in destroying it. Like the, the, the right. worlds he builds get destroyed often in his movies, but he invests everything he has in making that world. So when it falls apart, it doesn't feel like, and as much as I love the Godzilla movies, it doesn't feel like they're just crashing through a model yeah. Tokyo. It feels like it's destroying something of meaning for the characters and for the filmmaker. And like, like, like I say in Pacific Rim, the thing that I think he was most interested in that movie was that that uh, makeshift community that came up around the skeleton of a kaiju, and and how they the people live off of it, like harvesting it, selling yeah. whatever they can from it, like that, like he 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 is interested in the lives his characters lead more than a, a lot of other filmmakers, I think. Well, and you know, think about kind of the beautiful element of you need two people to run a Jaeger. So it's all about finding two people who can work together and be on that frequency with each other. I mean, you know, it's, it's something, it's, it's kind of funny. I've talked about some of this the other day. Um, it's something I never really thought about before all this, but um, music, I love music. I've always loved music. I'm a student of it, but I never really thought about how it's made. And when I was a kid, I wanted to learn the guitar. And so I saved up from like mowing lawns and I bought a guitar and I never really took lessons. Um, I would, I would play at it sometimes and that never took, I wasn't a natural genius at it. So I ended up like taking it apart to see like how the pickups worked. Cause that's just what I always do. If I like something, I take it apart to see how it works. Um, and it wasn't until recently that McLeod made a comment about like, you know, to create music, you have to be on this frequency with these other people. And you have to be able to kind of like surrender to it. And I'd never thought about that of like, oh, right. It's a miracle that this ever works <laughs> because like you're talking about two to however many people that have to share, you know, and like, how often is it? Yeah. You know, you, even as a non-musician, like you're walking around and most people aren't your friends. Most people are strangers, but you meet somebody and you start talking about movies and they like, David Cronenberg more than Steven Spielberg as well. And you're like, oh, okay, we need to talk more. Um, like that's, that's kind of how we all work, but I just never really thought about it that way. And yeah, like he wanted, I, 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 I really love the fact that like by focusing on devil's backbone, it has like, it has uh, led me to thinking about his experience on Mimic a lot because Steven Soderbergh had a similar experience uh, trying to make a, a studio movie and like just went nuts and ended up making Schizopolis because he was like, I'm either going to do this or like have a heart attack. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know if you've ever watched Schizopolis, but like <laughs> the angry energy of just like, why are we doing this? Like, Whereas Del Toro, he does, he loves everything that he's making. And I think Mimic really showed him, I think like one of the main lessons he took from it was, if I don't love it, I'm not gonna do it. You know, because if I'm saying yes for money, if I'm saying yes, just as like, it's a job, then like, you know, quote Taika Waititi, then you're just sitting in traffic waiting to work. Like, yeah. and that's, you know, he, that's not what he does. Um, 
you know, and yeah, so I think, I think the mimic experience, especially drive, it's, it's funny. Cause like his, his friend, you know, you know, Fazzo Quran had the same thing, made a movie with the Weinsteins and then went back to Mexico and like got his groove back. Um, you know, they have a way of breaking you and you can either say, well, I guess this is what Hollywood is. It's just going to break me all the time or screw that. Like I'm going to go make something that I love and remind myself that that's what this is about. Yeah, no, that, yeah. So for the mimic thing, it, it's the Weinstein's and they're, I mean, well, Harvey Weinstein's famous for something else now, but for a long time, they were famous for absolutely like just cutting, gutting a, a filmmaker's vision. They, yeah. you know, often in the guise of making it more commercially uh, profitable, but like you just hear from every filmmaker who worked for them that isn't Quentin Tarantino, how often their films just got destroyed and i i have heard reports that i i think mimic was dimension it was their genre Mm -hmm. arm and i hear i i I just hear reports that bob weinstein is the real monster on set like he would just like steamroll a filmmaker and like kind of cut them to hell um, we don't I mean, they do. both were, they just worked in, like much different, like Harvey was all about prestige and Bob was all about like profitability yeah. and, and, and genre. So yeah, and we don't need to like give them any more press. We don't need to go into it. But the, yeah. the experience was so bad for Del Toro that he said his father was kidnapped during the filming of, of uh, kidnapped and held for ransom. For 72 days. Yeah, during the filming of Mimic. And Del Toro has said that making Mimic was harder emotionally. Because... Yeah. because there weren't, said, oh, I love his explanation. Because there weren't rules. Like, yeah. my, it was like my father was kidnapped, but there were rules. Like, like I knew, the yeah, scenes, like, you just never knew. He, he's like, it was for money. I know what they want. Yeah. I know what they need. But I don't understand what... Like, it doesn't make any sense. So, like, gr- good for him for sticking with it to whatever ground he could and not not just submitting to it like i'm yeah i'm so glad he did the one for me one for them role model for a little while because devil's backbone uh he's for a long time he he said this was his favorite film along with pan's labyrinth which is the sister film yeah um in many ways in many ways the next film we're going to talk about crimson peak is also the sister film so the this i think they form a really nice uh well, they each pair with each other in, in interesting ways. Um, yeah. But yeah, he, like, I mean, it definitely doesn't fit with the trilogy that starts with Devil's Backbone and, and uh, Pan's Labyrinth. But, but yeah, like it was, it's interesting to watch Crimson Peak and be like, this is the same person, but just like needing to tell a different kind of, yeah, I mean, it's a gothic, horror, it's a gothic romance. Like yeah. he, and he wasn't, he wasn't able to really do that in the, kind of the apparatus of, you know, Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. Like, I think he needed to make a much more, you know, I don't know that shiny is the right word, but like, there's a lot more money happening in Crimson Peak and you got movie stars and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, but as for, for Devil's Backbone, like he goes, he goes back from this horrific Hollywood experience and, and kind of, back into the arms of his, his friends like he he you know works with people he knows he works in his native language this was supposed to be about the um the mexican revolution was when he originally wrote this uh but over the throughout the 90s over the years he got very interested in the rise of fascism in 
uh, in Spain and the Spanish Civil yeah. War and how they were kind of left abandoned by the rest of Europe. Europe did nothing while like kind of uh, Franco and the fascists rose to power. And he found that fascinating. And so he's done a, a couple of films. I, I kept expecting him, he, him to go back for one more that he was gonna make it a, an honest trilogy. But yeah. uh, the two movies we get, I, I feel like Pan's Labyrinth is the most overtly political. In here, it is in the backdrop. The the Civil yeah. War is mentioned. There's one scene of of horrific violence attributed to the war, and we see we see the planes and the flashback flying over and the bomb dropping because there's that bomb. But it's all symbols, and this is a movie of symbols. Mm -hmm. But all of the symbols work as a function in the story, not just like what they're supposed to be. Like clearly, the fact that they have the big crucifix. And the religious iconography, even though they're not religious, they're like, we're doing it to hide. Yeah. And well, I mean, oh, the, the, like, I love, like, because he's, he can be so overt about things and just like, yeah, there's just going to be a bomb sitting in the courtyard that like might go off. You don't know. It might also not. <laughs> it's just, it's such a wonderful, like, oh, there's just no way to miss that. Like, it's a, it's a bomb among, like, we're amongst us like it, it is yeah. it is such a potent <laughs> metaphor and it is kind of a Chekhov's gun thing where you're waiting and waiting for it to go yeah. off because we're told early on that it's been diffused but nobody none of the kids believe it the kids are like if you put your ear up to it you can hear it ticking and so as an audience we're waiting for that bomb to go off and yeah. when the bomb does go off it's from a completely different area not an unexpected area but it it does not come where where we think it will in the beginning uh but yeah like certainly there's there's the the symbolism in that even like in dr kazare i believe that's how it's pronounced dr kazare he he's a man of science he's so proudly a man of science that he 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 kind of gently dispels superstition in carlos he he doesn't he kind of gently mocks the people that do believe in the the, the devil's backbone is the the infant with spina bifida that's pickled in rum and the devil's backbone refers to the the uh well that but also the drink the rum that he sells as a medical cure-all in the town he kind of mocks that but then when nobody's looking he takes that shot he, yeah. he he's like this doesn't this is just like this is nonsense that primitive people believe or not primitive uh, you know what i mean this is nonsense. yes and and Less and then the, he's like as soon as nobody's looking, he takes a shot. Um, so there are there is meaning in kind of like everything the characters do, meaning towards yeah. meaning towards the plot as we see it, but also a meaning to a worldview as well, like a a, a different subtext to it. And but it's interesting, like because you know, Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth share so so much of a spine and share a heart, but like. You know, uh, he has talked about there were all these effects that he wanted to do, and there were all these little things that they just couldn't afford. You know, um, Santi wasn't supposed to have feet, um, but they couldn't afford to mm -hmm. make him float and like these feet. And that's what actually ended up making those. You know, like well, if we do the footprints, and then that adds the 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 the, the sound of water and everything and like there's all these little decisions that he kind of got forced into by lack of funds 
that then on Pan's Labyrinth, when they had plenty of money, I mean, I'm sure he would still say like, we didn't have enough, but you know, you get this like really realized fantasy world. Whereas in Devil's Backbone, it's much more uh, it's superstitious. It's much more grounded in our experience. And, you know, and so you get a sense of people creating a fantasy world. You get a sense of, oh, we, we think this because, you know, we don't have another answer for it. Or to, to believe in this is simpler than to acknowledge that the world is chaos. Um, where, but yeah, then you get to Pan's Labyrinth and it's all like much more on screen because he could afford to do it. Yeah, it, there is a kind of a progression in how big his movies get. Uh, yeah. And, and he is kind of, a, I think he's like kind of a classic classicist at heart. Like he loves grandeur. Uh, he's yeah. certainly in love with monsters. Like the way he portrays the ghosts in this movie is pretty much my ideal. Like I, yeah, I love this style of horror. I mean, I like, a, I love a good splatter fest as much as anybody. I love like the eighties gore fests and evil dead Two and like more hyper kinetic horror movies. Yeah, but the stuff that really gets under my skin is the stuff that goes for haunting more than overt. Yeah, I, something that I, I kind of learned, especially like in the lead up to Ghost Waits, was like uh, as I as I learned more about horror, about the genre, and about genre storytelling in general, um, I started to appreciate more that it's opera, you know, that it's it's operatic storytelling, um, and Del Toro does that, you know pretty much as well as anybody i think like his movies are just straight up opera <laughs> um and and you know you you lose you know like shape of water i i i thought um or, or the more modern you now shape of water comes to peak like like you lose little bits like there are traces of humanity that get lost as his canvas gets so much bigger um because he's just telling these massive stories you know and even if the story itself is small he loves a big canvas he loves to use all the colors mm -hmm. um oh my god the colors in devil's backbone and crimson peak are just amazing but like yeah it, and it's what it's it's why i think it's one of the big reasons i was like let's talk about guillermo del toro because the more i thought about what i liked and um and kind of how i made decisions on the on weights I realize like how much he has informed, you know, the way that I think and the way that I feel. And it's cause yeah, he wants to make emotional horror films, you know, Pan's Labyrinth who amongst us wasn't crying when that ended, yeah. you know, <laughs> devil's backbone devastated me and Crimson Peak. There's so much to it that I don't, I actually, I mean, I, I tend to rewatch movies, but I don't always think that movies need to be rewatched to get everything. A movie like Tenet, it's all there on the first viewing. Let me <laughs> yeah. assure you. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like, I just watched Crimson Peak over the weekend. I hadn't seen it in a few years or, or a couple years or whatever it was. But, you know, you just, it's easy to kind of discount or to, to kind of laugh at just how like bluntly he can say something or how a character will say something. You know, it's like, because we're moving through, you know, like we got to get her to, we got to get her to Allendale, you know? So the stuff in Buffalo, we just, we got to introduce the stuff so that it happens, but like his heart is here. Um, but then you go back and it's like, 
actually, if you come, if you watch everything from a place of Jim Beaver is a father who loves his daughter and, you know, everybody has love for the people around them, you know, it becomes a much more richer text, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Um, we, we'll get to Crimson Peak, but I agree that there is a, a point where he, it, it can feel in his movies like the surface textures are overwhelming everything else. Yeah. Um, even in, I, I think at its height are Crimson Peak and Pacific Rim. They're movies that on a first viewing, it's so easy to get lost in the production design that you kind of think, or not think, but it feels like that's all there is. Uh, yeah. But if you can find an in, or even if you can just submit yourself to the beauty of the movie, like it, it will kind of reveal these further things. Because he is a person who kind of puts a meaning into everything. Nothing is chosen simply because it looks cool. I mean, yeah. maybe it is. Maybe it's chosen because it just looks cool. But it also, he, he invests more import to it than just like, no, that's a cool shot. Well, he talks a lot about his sketchbook. Yeah. You know, like with Devil's Backbone, he had all these sketches. And when they were devising the look of Santi, you know, he, he was going back and forth with, with the art, uh, with, with the artists, just like, don't be afraid of the sketch. Like, you know, lean into the porcelainness, lean into like, you know, because Santi has to be a force of innocence, you know, like in the same way that Carlos is. Um, you know, we, it's important, you know, that we're following Carlos to the story, but, you know, I, I think that we, we start to, we grow to understand that Santi and Carlos are very similar people and what happened to Santi could easily happen to Carlos if he doesn't go on this journey, you know, and like at the end of the day, bad shit can still happen to you, but if you're paying attention, you can learn how to recognize that it's happening and, you know, and that's a huge part of Backbone and, and Labyrinth is like, just because this is your country doesn't mean that it's good and right, you know, and like, sometimes we need to dissent because bad is it bad is bad and wrong is wrong, no matter what, you know, and I mean, we've been seeing that in this country, you know, oh, yeah, for the yeah, last few years, yeah. I mean, not just the last few years, but like, yeah, it's like, if you need to recognize that, like, um, I, I, I was talking about, like, I have a thing in my head that I think most people have a dividing, uh, a little stick that like, you know, if someone that they like does something that a person they don't like does, they can kind of divide where it's like, well, this is my friend. They're not a bad person, but like, I don't have that. So sometimes friends will do things and I'm like, nope, no, no, nope, nope. That's see, that's, that's how you get fascism. Do you want fascism? Because that's how yeah. you get fascism. <laughs> I think I think this the, these movies are are unfortunately timely these days. Um, it just was what we've been dealing with. And to be to be bluntly honest, I mean, it's stuff that we've been dealing with for a lot longer than just the last five years. Yeah. But it, it has been impossible to ignore the last five years. Um, yeah. You know, and it kind of does make some of these movies a little uncomfortable in that way to realize like, well, this could be the end result of uh -huh. of where we're going. And that that stick you have, I try to be a little bit more generous in how I divide. I, I see that where I think 
I mean, certainly it, it's being tested these days, <laughs> but I kind of think the more you know somebody, like really know them, the harder it is to actively hate them, even if they're doing hateful sure. things. But like I said, that is certainly being tested nowadays. <laughs> like there are there are are things where I'm finding like, well, no, there is a line. There is a line. Well, I'm if you say. know somebody, then yeah. you kind of know the path they took to get where they got. Mm. So when they do or say something that you think is wrong, you can kind of follow the the path of like, okay, I see how you got there. Whereas if you don't know them, all you're seeing is this wrongness. And yeah, like, I mean, I think as a storyteller, that's interesting to me is like, you know, it's a propinquity, you know, proximity breeds familiarity, breeds fondness. Um, you know, so we, we want to think, we want to believe the best things about those who we love or like, um, and, and especially those we trust, because there's almost nothing worse than you actually trust somebody and then find out that you've been trusting a villain. Mm. But like, that's what makes an interesting story. And the idea, especially, you know, I mean, Del Toro's movies, those like otherworldly or supernatural creatures never do harm. Almost never. I mean, Pan's Labyrinth, there's definitely some yeah, harm. Yeah. But like, it's always people. People do the worst stuff, you know? And we, we think, oh, it's a ghost. It's going to be scary. It's a villain. And it's like, no, he's just a little boy. He's just a little boy that never got to grow up. And whereas like here's here is a living little boy that never got to grow up but is now considered an adult male and he's gonna do horrible shit and yeah like and he has friends and he has a fiance and they all want to think he's right and good and look where that gets them yeah, yeah. del toro del toro definitely i mean he's definitely in love with monsters i, I mean that, that's yes. That, that's the name of that that show that was touring that was his uh his collection that's a, a yeah. phrase associated with him in a way that i completely completely identify with and you you talked about getting into horror later in life um it certainly took me a while to get into horror I, maybe a little i was a little younger than you but i i was just way too scared as a as a kid i yeah i had some traumatic experiences with the thing when I was like seven or so. And uh, it just completely turned me off. I, I loved monsters though. Like I would check out books. I was reading Stephen King in elementary school. I would read books and look at pictures, but I just couldn't handle movies. And, yeah. and the movie that changed it all for me was Nightbreed. Uh, I'm, I'm a big Clyde Barker fan, but that movie, in that movie, obviously the monsters are, great are, are not the villains the monsters have a very tight-knit community it is the humans that are horrible that are doing horrible things and certainly that wasn't the first movie to do that but it's the first one that i saw and i i just i've loved monsters and the supernatural as well and in del toro's movies it's it, pan's labyrinth there are villainous monsters but they're all kind of stand-ins for the villainous people as well the supernatural is never anything to be feared it's scary uh, it, maybe you should have a healthy fear of it or a wariness of it but you should also embrace it 
Well, I think it's it's that we, you know, we start with a fear of the unknown. It's why we're afraid of the dark. It's why we're afraid of what's in our closet or under our bed. We're, you know, because when you're when you're that young and you you don't really have object permanence yet, or you're st- or you're just starting to gain it, like out of sight is the unknown. You know, and it's the it's it's interesting anthropologically to watch like people who take that foundational fear and then extend it to, you know, this block of people that you don't know is the unknown and is coming for you in the night, um, you know, and like why they're doing that. It's like, it's all, it's it, it to breed division, you know, us versus them. I, I feel bad that like, I feel like every podcast I go on devolves into me talking about the horrors of capitalism, but yeah, like, you're, you're we are sold. <laughs> yeah. Like we are sold kind of unit because it's easier for the wealthy to, you know, kind of break up everybody. Cause you know, it's one of those things where it's like, there's more of us than of them, but if they figure out how to divide us, we're screwed. So you take that fear of the unknown and you start making other people the unknown. And what's so interesting about people, you know, storytellers like Del Toro and, and, and his ilk uh, and Barker are, you know, you know how you get over the unknown? You know it, you engage, you listen, you, you know, you don't run in fear. Um, that was, it's, it, when we were, when we were making a ghost way, it's like one of the ways that I kind of figured out how it should visually, um, play is I thought a lot about two filmmakers or, uh, well, one director and an actor. Uh, I thought a lot about Lars, uh, Lars von Trier mm-hmm. and I thought about Dustin Hoffman. Uh, Dustin Hoffman in some movies, like the one that left to mind was Last Chance Harvey, but like he has a way of standing that looks like, you know, he's like opposing nature. Like, you know, the world is, is there's, there should be nothing there, but he's like rooted to his place. And it's just this like will. It's this like, I'm here for this person, you know, usually a woman because he did a lot of love stories. Um, but like, I'm here for connection. And maybe the default state of things is for that not to exist, but like, damn it, I'm here. And I like, if I have any breath in my body, I'm going to use it to pursue this connection. And uh, coupling that with Von Trier and his curiosity about uh, human nature and how he wants or just like the grimiest parts of ourselves. I, I thought a lot about, and I guess Bergman is an obvious addition to this list of just like, I like filmmakers who don't blink. I like filmmakers who like they're standing, you know, like this is what's interesting to me. This is what I'm curious about. And I'm going to dig until I, till I, till I feel like I've gotten to the core of it and that might get dirty and messy, but like, I'm not going to stop until I, till I find what I think is there. And if it's not there, that's why scenes get deleted. But like that, that was my thing is move the camera and you know, you've seen it. It's a pretty locked off camera. Um, you know, it was like, no, I just, I wanted that gaze. I never wanted it to, it to break its gaze. And I feel like he does a lot of that. And I mean, Crimson Peak, it's literally said, I don't want to look away. 
Like, and you know, oh, I love, especially going back. It's like, when he's like, I often find looking away from things that make me uncomfortable helps. And she's like, I don't want to look away. And you're like, that's the entire story of this dynamic. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Well, um, I know that was a lot of answer. No, that was great. That was great. It was so much answer. I, I, though I cannot remember what track I was on before we started, but it was great. I, I, I like it all. Um, <laughs> one thing I, uh, hold on. Uh, one thing I do really like in this movie is there is a real warmth to it. Like, like there's, there is villainy there is real there are real monsters in the world of this movie mm -hmm. clearly there's horrific violence um like i talk about how much i like kind of like the stately classicism of some of these ghost stories del toro really knows when the violence is going to give the biggest impact and when it is yeah best to be deployed because there are a couple just a couple of scenes of violence in this movie that are unflinching and they're not necessarily the bloodiest or grossest in both movies, but in particular, like Jacinta, Jacinto at the end of this movie, I did flinch. Like I'm not the biggest wimp. I'm not like the biggest gore hound either, but yeah. like seeing some of the stuff that happens and how it's portrayed, it was like, Oh, that's gnarly. And it's making me physically uncomfortable, you know, but it, it I, I, uh, but I really do appreciate that because it's a counterpoint to how warm the rest of the movie is. Obviously, it's kind of like the, a hot, sun-baked area that the orphanage is in, but it's got all these really nice golden earth tones. That sky looks amazing every time. Like, they're inside the orphanage. You don't see the sky a lot, but when they go out, it's like wide open fields and the bluest sky, and it looks yeah. gorgeous. Uh the texture of the film looks great, but also in the characters, like there, there are kids that are bullies at first that kind of come around. But yes. in the end, the kids are all banded together. Like there's that scene at night where the kids are all sharing their treasures and yeah. it, it's a little bit like naughty. It, like the kid has the drawing of the naked woman and they're like talking about her, about her. And, um, but it, it's such a, a scene of camaraderie which also extends to the adults other than Jacinto. Because usually in these like orphanage or, or boarding school movies, the adults are so villainous. They're so cold. Right. But these kids, these adults care about these kids. They, they can, they can't take care of anymore, but they're still willing to take another kid. Dr. Kazare is so like noble and kind throughout the entire movie. I mean, he, he, he decides to run at the end. But they're still like, let's take as many of these kids as with us as we can. But he he he's like, he's staying in a place that is, he's probably going to die at because he yeah. loves this woman and he cares about the kids and how he treats them is always so kind. Um, which I really I, I really did appreciate it. Like really, the only villain in this movie we see is Jacinto, who is right. so monstrous. Like, but that's what's interesting because that's what we see. But you also have the bomb you know, the bomb that was dropped to blow up this orphanage that just happened to not go off. Like, it's, it is, it's all about this, like, greater evil, this, like, system that's happening, and you get to see a finger of it, you get to see Jacinta, you get to see a radicalized individual, but you don't, but, like, it's all, 
you know, when the story ends, there are many other radicalized individuals, you know, this is happening everywhere. And like that, that I think is fascinating that like, because of his experience with this, he's always just like, you know, we get to see the mask of a villain, but like what led the villain in the first place to this? Yeah. Mm. That's a very good point because this movie ends with most of the kids have died and the ones that are left, like all of the adults are, de- are dead by the end of the movie. And the kids that are left have to fend off Jacinto. And then they have to make the day's journey to the nearest town. Yep. And they're, they're walking that empty, empty road. And you do think like, well, what's going to happen to them? Because Jacinto grew up in an orphanage. It was not the easiest life, but it looked like it was a life that had love in it. Like the adults, but the adults did care for him, but he could not accept that. Like they're, it just seemed like he always wanted something more. And I mean, he's clearly the, the child of the, the, the child of the left, like his parents would have been yeah. or are implied to have been leftists. And it's not clear when they died. He, it, it, but by his age, he would have, he would have, they would have died before the civil war, before all of this went, went down. Um, I, I honestly, I don't know enough about the Spanish Civil War to really speak a lot about what it all means, but he right. he he is clearly something has gone wrong for him. And you don't know exactly what it is because these kids are kind of living the same life. And it's like, well, what is going to happen to them? I don't see them having a very good future at the moment. Like what's going to happen to them when they reach that? This town? is what's interesting about story is like, a well-told story becomes a litmus test for what you believe and what your worldview is like, because yeah, they're walking down the street and we can easily, we can very easily say what I was just saying a second ago that like the fingers of radicalization are everywhere. And, you know, they may walk down the street and find another town with a bunch of Jacintos, or they may walk down the street and find another town with a, a bunch of Dr. Casares. Like, you know, what do you want to believe um, I thought Providence Young Woman did a really good job this year of ending on a, uh, ending in a place where it's like, you get to choose what you think happens next. Okay, well, yeah. uh, tread carefully because I have not seen that yet. And I no, really no, I wasn't going to say anything else. Okay. <laughs> but like, um, you know, but yeah, where a, where a story ends, you know, I, so like I said, there was a, you know, we had the original ending and then I changed it. And I had a, I had like a basic sense of what I thought I wanted to do, but I didn't know how I would do it. And then I, ha- I was out. I, I had seen the Bengsons workshop their show hundred days at the no theater in Cincinnati. And all of those songs were in my head. And I just saw, I heard years go by and I saw a garage and I was like, I know how this movie ends. And I think like your the beginning of your movie is your hook. Essentially it's your idea. And you're the, the end of your movie is your point. That's not that there's any monolithic movie, but like, you know, that to me is how I approach things. It's like, all right, you know, we start with the idea and we end with the point. Um, and you don't, that doesn't mean that you have to know your point right off the bat. You're not going to. To be honest, like I made this movie. I wrote it. I directed it. I produced it. I edited it. I shot a lot of it. Like I, this is very much, you know, my baby, but like once it was done and out, like um, I was asked to speak to a class in England, a, like an economics course, because the person who ran it saw the movie. and was like, this is a great story about the evils of capitalism. And I was just like, 
well, that makes sense. Like I had not thought about it at all. It was just, I was telling a story and I was telling a story in a way that I could. And, you know, I was also in a really bad place when I, when I wrote it. So like, I felt very left behind by the world and everything. I felt like I didn't have a place. And so it was easy to tell a story about somebody who felt left behind and felt like they didn't have a place. It's interesting to me. Um, like I love the ending of Silver Lang's playbook because it's so mercenary. Like he says, there's that scene when he's like up at night reading and he's just like, you know, and he gets there and they're happy and you could end the book, but he does it. It keeps going and she dies. And what the hell? Life's hard enough. And just like, yeah, he tells you, I'm going to end this movie in a place that might not feel authentic to some of you, but will feel satisfying to a lot of people. And that is kind of the choice. You, you're choosing how you tell like what story you're telling and your ending is the story that you're telling. I do believe the ending is meant to be cautiously optimistic. Yeah. Um, I, I was kind of putting a dour reading on it, but the way that it ends with Kazare is, has died and he now is a ghost the way that uh, Santi is, where he kind of like is just there and he, he offers words to help, even though yeah. he might be scary. The final shot of the movie is the kids walking off down the street while he is in the shadows of the entry to the orphanage talking about what is a ghost, the monologue that opens the movie. And he says, I am a ghost. And if we want to look at that with my limited knowledge of the Spanish civil war, as Dr. Cazare is the older generation. He is dead. He is looking on as the younger generation walk out of the shadows into the bright sunlight down this very long, hard road before they're going to be able to find any shelter. And they will be, there will be shelter. There will be a struggle along the way, but there will be shelter coming at the end of it. And that, that, that is a pretty positive spin, even though it's not the typical happy ending you might, you might maybe want out of a movie like this, but it, it, I mean, I think I thought it was a perfect place to end it. It's such a like, it's such a perfect note. It actually gave me chills watching it the last, yeah. this weekend. Well, I mean, you know, we won't get in. We don't have to get in spoilers because. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry. I kind of just. Oh, no, I, I don't. What I mean is like we don't oh, have to get okay. in spoilers of a ghost waits. Like I oh, feel okay. like a discussion of a movie you're going to spoil, but like we're not discussing ghost waits. But like the ending of a ghost waits, you know, I believe that it, the world is. I believe that we live in an uncaring universe. And it's on us to find what works for us. It's on us to find connection. It's on us to take care of ourselves. The universe will not do that for us. And so, yeah, I the, the ending of Pan's Labyrinth, the ending of Del's Backbone, the ending of Crimson Peak, like the, the way Del Toro ends his stories tends to speak to me because it is this acknowledgement of like, you can't just, you know, we don't, don't live home you know we we give them on occasions because it's nice to read some words words and make it feel they make it feel like life makes sense for a second but that's not the case but but like we have these moments and that is not nothing like these moments are literally what life is made of hmm. yeah that that is perfect i think that, i think 
that is a great way to wrap up this movie. Do you have anything else you want to say about Devil's Backbone or do you want to just move on to Crimson Peak? Nope. I mean, we'll probably end up doubling back during talking about Crimson Peak. Yeah, yeah. Like, about Crimson Peak. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, yeah, that's... There's a lot of bleed over between these conversations. That's fine. We yeah. kind of jumped ahead and we'll jump back and we'll jump all over the place. It's fine. It is, uh, it is for the remainder. It is our show. We do whatever the hell we want. Right. So we'll take a little break. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll take a really quick break. We'll be right back and we'll be discussing Crimson Peak. Ghosts are real. That much I know. I've seen them all my life. Would you be mine? Edith, this is my sister. I don't think she's the right choice. You have to trust me. Thomas, your bride is frozen. I'll run you a hot bath. the house that are unsafe. What was that? A house as old as this one becomes in time a living thing. Never go below this level. It starts holding on to things. Has anyone died in this house? Specific deaths, violent deaths. In your own best interest, proceed with caution. Keeping them alive when they shouldn't be. If you're here with me, give me a signal. She knows everything. In the early 1900s, Edith Cushing, played by Mia Wasikowska, an aspiring author, marries the dashing Thomas Sharp, played by Tom Hiddleston and moves with him to his ancestral home of Allerdale Hall in England, a crumbling manor slowly sinking into the red clay that it was built upon. Dark doings and sinister secrets wait there to be discovered in Guillermo del Toro's entry into the gothic romance genre. Now, this is my pick this week, and I kind of picked it just because it's another ghost story, and I, I could have picked Pan's Labyrinth because that, that seems like the more obvious connection to Devil's Backbone. They're both set during the Spanish Civil War. They are sister films as he likes to describe them but i, I kind of chose this just because it was another ghost story but watching it i was amazed by how many similarities there were some that i noticed my first viewing some that i had forgotten about some i'd never noticed before um because as i was saying before we, in our discussion earlier that sometimes it's easy to just accept del toro's movies on their surface level and ignore <clears throat> maybe a little bit or miss what's going on underneath I haven't seen this since I, I saw it in theaters. And when I saw it, I was like, yeah, I get that. That, that movie kind of tells you how to watch it from the opening where she's delivering her book and she says, it's not a ghost story. It's a story with a ghost in it. I was like, okay, yeah. that the, the movie is telling us, they call her J their, their own Jane Austen. So I'm like, okay, this movie yeah. is telling us to view it as a Gothic romance, that it's not going to be a, a horror movie. It, it, it kind of like repeatedly hammers home that no, this is going to be a romance and there's just going to be a ghost in it. And I liked it in theaters, but I left it thinking it was his most what you see what you is what you get film. Mm -hmm. 
and watching it this weekend, and I just watched it on Saturday, I, I just, I fell in love with it. I like, I really enjoyed it this time. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to rank anything. I, I think maybe yeah. I prefer Devil's Backbone, but I just, everything about this movie really worked for me this time. But what are your, what are your thoughts? What's your, what are your feelings on uh, Crimson Peak? I, I just cycled through three different titles. <laughs> Um, as long as we don't start talking about Crimson Tide as well. Um, I I think it's a really, like, I don't think I had noticed before um, that it's a, lo- it's a story about first love, you know, because like, like you said, like she's introduced and it's, um, you know, oh, our own Jane Austen. And she has that really, you know, like, she, you know, she died a spinster. She's like, I'd rather be Mary Shelley. She died a widow. Like, it's that it's that confidence of youth that like, this is what I want. This is um, it's like the Anna Kendrick monologue and up in the air where it's like, I'm going to drive this car and I'll be married to somebody who does this and we'll have a dog of this breed and our house will be this. And, you know, when you're young, you have all these ideas of what the kind of person you're going to be. And then you get older and you have your heart broken a bunch and you're just like, you know what, I'll be whatever the hell there is like play the ball as it lies guys. Uh, (laughs) so yeah it's like I was really appreciating like oh yeah this is the story of like your first heartbreak you know and it feels that I mean it's so big you know that is if you if you are able to kind of go back to when you were young and not judge yourself for it like this is how this felt it was life or death it was you know it was everything it was opera as I said yeah no, that, that's another thing that's kind of foreshadowed in the beginning of the movie, in that opening act in Albany, right? It's set in Albany, New York. Buffalo. Buffalo. What did I, okay. Well, anyway, that opening set in America where she's trying to write the book and people are telling her, add a romance to it because that's what yeah. women like to like to read. And she's not interested in it. She, she doesn't care about it, but she's trying to write it in there. And Tom Hiddleston. She thinks it's small. Yeah. Yeah. And Tom Hiddleston confronts her, and he's trying to be cruel because uh, because her father has said that you must break it off, and so he's trying to be cruel. Where he criticizes the romance and says that she knows nothing about it. Yeah. It's it's a child's idea of love, yeah. which then kind of sets up what journey she goes through this movie. That I mean, she like gets her heart break broken in such an epic fashion she is so hurt by what happens for the rest of the movie or uh, attacked by what happens because it, it it seems like she's strong enough to come out the other side of this but i'm just saying like the the torture that she goes through with this relationship with this man does seem like it's like okay you're right it, it's her first love this is the thing she has to get past she has to experience heartache to understand what what love is or to grow and it just happens to be on a very epic operatic scale yeah like even if you just look at you know one of the things about when you start kind of getting into relationships with people the idea that they could be in a relationship with someone else you know the idea that he was married before you know and kind of reconciling like Oh, I, you know, like I thought I was gonna, you know, I was the first person that you loved this way. I was the first person that you trusted this way, you know, especially if it's your first time, um, you know, and, and that then building up to like, okay, there's other people, but 
then catching him in flagrante with Jessica Chastain. And it's just like, but your sister, like I got to be able to trust that you're not going to do that. Um, And again, if you approach every character in a Guillermo del Toro movie with an open heart, like what she says, what Chastain says about like, we were all each other had, you know, we weren't able to see, you know, the outside world. We weren't able to meet other people. So of course they love each other. And of course that gets messy, but like, to Mia Wasikowska's character, you know, to Edith, like, it's just a constant succession of, well, people don't do that, surely. Oh, they yeah. do? <laughs> so that by the end, yeah, she's like walking out into, you know, into nothingness with Charlie Hunnam. And it's just like, you know, she's actually, now she's a bit more ready for what comes next. It, it does also, it does offer kind of an example of love gone well, not not gone wrong, but just twisted by, I mean, literal incest in this movie and that they're brother and sister. But it, you can see in the movie, in their dialogue, how it grew from an honest place. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's horrible. I'm not to, <laughs> like, I'm not defending, you know, brothers and sisters uh, in that relationship. But you can see how it's just like they were all they had. They had to support each other. Um that there was a real love between them, but yeah. it became so inwardly focused. It was more on Jessica Chastain's part than Tom Hiddleston's, but certainly they're both only focused on each other in a way that it 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 twists and corrupts everything else. So it's it's only love for each other, and everybody else is disposable and or yeah. hateful. It made me very curious about his previous marriages because you know he his his relationship with his sister was very much kind of foisted upon him you know his sister was the one in charge and you 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 know i mean that's his story is he just kind of goes along with whatever and you know he's able to kind of turn his eyes away from a lot of things because she takes care of the really messy stuff um she's she's acutely aware as she says in the movie about like that being a woman puts her at a disadvantage and that, you know, she's going to need him to walk, to walk through the world. You know, people will trust a man with something people will trust, you know, will, you know, but they're not going to trust her. Um, and then, you know, and I, and you can even see it when she's like, you know, forever, if we're caught, like, I'm going to get put away forever. You're just going to get hung. You know? And now she's like, you know, she sees death as an escape from consequence. You know, it would be far worse to have to live with yourself for years than just get to be killed. Um, Which is interesting because she lives in like the most haunted house ever. But uh, yeah, it's it's it has so many interesting things to say about love and the various functional versus and dysfunctional, you know, ways that it works but like how he responds to Mia Wasikowska and how he does grow to love her because she's basically just like, I think you're good. I think you're probably a really good person. Uh, You know, she just kind of, she assumes the best of him and the idea that like the others wouldn't. And I guess, you know, cause Chastain at one point says, are you sure she's so young? You know, it's like, yeah. Did he like gravitate towards like older? I mean, cause obviously they couldn't have living relatives. So maybe a little bit older meant that you get a, I don't know, but yeah, it's like the fact that he hooked up with somebody young reminded him of an idealism that I think he's probably been trying to 
to forget about for a while or or that you could share an idealism with somebody else like she was interested in the the, the machine that he's building she was interested in and you know and she tells him like we can just go like we can just live in paris like we got money you know we're not stuck with this house like let's just go and he just can't imagine it um but then at the end he is the one that says we can leave like he is the one that yeah. tells jessica chastain but then jessica chastain is like oh you want to bring her too like yeah she's just like it'll be all it'll just she's thinking it'll just be the two of them he's thinking he's still going to have some sort of relationship all of us. And I love it. All he has to say is all of us. And she's like, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I, that's more than two, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do think, and I might be completely wrong about this, but I do think the movie starts to let Tom Hiddleston off the hook a little bit in a way that I was kind of yeah. like, but he's, he's just a monster too. Even if he, he wasn't yeah, actively doing it. He knew what was going on and he helped it going because it starts yep. to it starts to humanize him because I think we're seeing it through Mia Waskowska's or Edith Cushing's eyes. Yeah. We're seeing it through her desire to 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 think the best in him and his desire to be seen that way. That like he even he even like he even kind of it, it, saves the doctor it's treated as heroic that he's like you tell right, me where to yeah. stab you that you won't die you'll just be yeah. in horrible horrible pain it's an interesting point like have you seen annihilation by alex garland oh yeah okay yeah. so like something that always kind of like troubled me for a long time about that movie was that i felt like the filmmaking didn't reflect the experience of the characters you know um I think I always kind of wanted it to be more of a Darren Aronofsky thing where like the camera gets a lot shakier and the world's falling apart because their worlds are falling apart. It wasn't until, you know, I just watched it for a uh, podcast and like I had been really struggling with like, you know, I want, I think this movie is amazing. Why don't I, like, I feel like I'm not getting something. And it was this past watch where I was like, oh, because there's no default perspective. You know, the, the, the filmmakers of Annihilation really went out of their way to make something truly alien. And so, you know, if if the filmmaking were to reflect the experience of the human characters, then that would say that the human characters or the human perspective is the default perspective. And that's not what that movie was about. It's a I think it's a question of perspective. Yeah, because we're watching it through Edith's eyes, we're going to see him the way she sees him. Now, you know, that's a little tricky because we're we have more information than she does. And we're aware that he's not a great you know, person and has maybe done some nefarious things, though we don't know what. And it's a you know question of like how little do we want to think of him. It's obviously something bad, considering they kill Jim Beaver to like not have it. But um, but yeah, like it's tied to her. I had yeah, you're. I think you're right. I think we, the the movie gives him more benefit of doubt than he maybe deserves because. It's her story. Uh, I just, I, I, I noticed at this time that Jessica Chastain, that the, the women in this movie, the two women are, Mia Wasikowska is, or Edith, is so kind of idealized as a, a woman who's a bit ahead of her time. She was ready to be a little bit, like she's young and naive, but she is yeah. ready and wanting to be more independent and more in control. 
and um, more forward thinking than you might expect from the early 1900s. Uh, right. Certainly the like kind of aristocracy yeah. of the early 1900s. And the other woman we've got in the film is a flat villain, just like like all she wants is her brother all to herself. She kills multiple women, like slowly and horribly. She kills her own child. Like, like she's such a, a conniving, horrible person that the, the two poles, it just seems like, well, Tom Hiddleston's merely being let off the hook here. But if we're viewing yeah. it as that, it's because we see it through Edith's eyes. Maybe that's a little bit more easy to forgive, narratively speaking. And I think it goes back to like approaching Chastain's character with an open heart. Like, I mean, she does terrible things. She's clearly a villain, but like the movie gives her a chance to, gives her a moment, not a chance, gives her a moment to explain where she's coming from. You know, like it, it goes back to our earlier conversation about if you like somebody, then you can go down the path with them of how they got to doing something terrible. You know, it, 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 I think that explains a lot of Tom Hiddleston of just like, he was, he grew up trusting her implicitly and that's, that's what he knows. You know, um, you've heard about like, it's not a parable, but like how, you know, if you have, if you take a baby elephant and you tie them to a tree, they'll try to break away from the tree, but they can't. And then they grow up into like an adult elephant, you know, and could easily break the tree and run away. But they grew up thinking they couldn't do that. And so they stay stuck to the tree. She's obviously a villain. Please listeners don't go kill people. But like, but yeah, it's the story is, but why, you know? Well, we do get, because we see that their, their shared childhood was pretty devoid of affection and caring from either of their parents. We hear that after the mother was killed by one of them, probably Jessica, I think Jessica Chastain says she she did it or admits to it later on. Yeah. But nobody, nobody, those were our mother's last words too. Yeah. Nobody wants to believe it was the kids at the time. So they talk about how Tom Hiddleston was sent to a boarding school and she was sent to a, what is implied to be an asylum of some sort which in the late 1800s would not have been a pleasant experience for her um it's not a pleasant experience now but yeah (laughs) no no but i mean yeah what what was passing for psychological care in the 1800s right um so you can imagine that that would have further twisted her as well one thing i i wanted before you know um because I, I had to like stop the movie for a second, like very the very beginning, you know, when her mom comes, when Edith's mom comes to her the, the first time, uh, you know, you start with that just a that shot of Edith in bed, and I had to pause it because like the way that the way he uses color to inform you passively of like where story is going to happen, you have Edith, you know, foreground you know, taking up the, the lower third of the, you know, the lower half of the screen really. And then above her head is a little bit of night, uh, you know, a little light from the outside coming in. And it's that like beautiful shade of like peacock blue or something. And then in the hallway has the same blue. And 
I just started noticing that like he's using color to draw your eyes around to, to where like okay this is where story is going to be but like this is where story yeah like you have the you have the dominant image which is okay this is where this is our character but then color is telling you where to look for story that's about to happen and I was just like man he's really good at filmmaking there's a reason i said it's so easy to get lost in the surface pleasures of this movie because this gothic romance horror subgenre that he's exploring it does feel in a way like it's all an excuse to let him play with his toys where he's just like i think this would be really fun this is a crumbling house my camera is going to sweep a lovingly across decay the walls are going to ooze red like literally bleed in this yeah. movie um it, like the character names cushing uh, peter cushing right and the um the other name oh yeah uh, he does that all the time in his movies yeah he also calls out the name uh the cavendish and the sinking manor which are um you know the callbacks to Hellboy like the first Hellboy comic book arc was Cavendish Hall and it was sinking into its foundations even the hallways the hallways look like Iron Maidens and the way that the scale Mm -hmm. kind of decreases as you go one direction so when you look at it it's just like shrinking rings of spikes shooting out that are are like well he's clearly just like like throwing in everything he loves, everything he can think of into this. And so it's easy to get lost in that, but he is really, it's so enjoyable. Like it it is, and and just like allowing myself to accept the story he was telling on his terms and fall into this production design on this time really like worked for me in a way it didn't in the theaters. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, especially you watch something a second time, you're always going to notice details. Yeah, I, I kind yeah. of feel that that way a lot with Del Toro's later films. Um, like his earlier films, Devil's Backbone, I, I mean, I always like them when I first watch them, but it's on second viewings that I allow myself to just like really, really fall into them. And I don't know if it's because I'm putting any expectations because the the my love for past del toro films is making me want this next one to be something more like maybe i'm, I'm just hyping it up myself and so it does take mm-hmm. it does take me to like adjust my expectations on a second viewing but i always his films always do much better on rewatches for me yeah i mean i think it's i mean i think it's basically the same thing as like listening to the new album of a band you love you're excited to get it and so the first time you listen you're so excited to be listening to what they do that you don't hear all of it because you're just, you know, it's, I mean, it's like a puppy, like you've got so much coming at you and you tend to get kind of the overall-ness of it, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's going back and listening to it again and just like, Oh, this time I really keyed in on the drums or this time I really keyed in on what so-and-so was doing with the guitar. And you start to really appreciate the interplay between things, you know, you know films the same way. Like, how many people the first time they watch something are thinking about theme, you know, you watch a movie and you're, you're trying to process everything, but especially somebody that directs with so much heart as del Toro, there's no way you're going to catch all of it. And, you know, and I, 
like I, I used Tenet as an example earlier of like, you don't have to watch everything twice to, to get it. Like there's amazing ideas in Tenet and I'm excited to watch it again because I, you know, you want to see the, the action sequences, but like his characters, especially in Tenet are ciphers, yeah. you know, they're, they are suits to move the plot along. And that is not always the case with him. You know, some of his are very rewarding to, uh, to, to go back and revisit, but it does. It kind of like it, it, I always find it helps me to like further my appreciation of somebody to be able to look at like, what is not that, you know? Yeah. And well, to, to, yeah. to jump on Tenet for a second, a movie that I did like more than I think a lot of people uh, did I agree with you that you get one viewing of it and you're like, I know what that movie is. It, it's not that complicated because it's got amazing action, but the dialogue is 90% people telling you what the movie is about. <laughs> like yes. it, it, the movie is all explaining the movie to you. Yeah. And so you get to the end of it and it's like, well, I get it and I enjoyed it, but it's still like, I get it. Yeah. We're, so that one is really like, that is a movie that is what you see is what you get that is yep. just like all on top but and it's totally fair to just want to get it again <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I i do think people I eat be... taco bell a second time you know it's, it's fine <laughs> i do think i will be watching it again because there was stuff in that movie that visually was so exciting um yeah it was just as as a movie as a story uh like you know, it's fine it is what it is you know what movie now that I think about like kind of reminds me of Crimson, uh, not like that I think kind of shares a frequency is uh, Baz Luhrmann's Great Gatsby, where like there's so much excess and there's so much form and there's so much going on. But if you go back and like just I, I was thinking because Elizabeth Debicki was like the first time I really noticed her as an actor it was like you just watch Debicki, you know, like I love what you're doing. Like you're having so much fun and it's like all part of the, the the symphony of this movie. You watch DiCaprio, like you, you know, you can go back and kind of zone in on each character or you can go back and just like how music is used, how the editing works. Like, like Speed Racer is a movie that the first time I saw it, I was just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> you know, like I, cause it was just too much it was honestly just too much for me it's like if you just like here is a five pound bag of gummy bears you have to eat them all in two hours like at the end i'm just like i need to go to the bathroom maybe the hospital i don't know like but then years go by and you you know you revisit speed racer and you're just like my god this movie's just inventing a language the speed you know? racer that that <laughs> one god i i will say that i love speed racer the moment i saw it but also had the feeling like, oh my gosh, this is giving me, uh, it's giving me a sugar headache. Like I'm just like, uh, like it's like crashing from the biggest sugar high. Yeah. So it can be a bit much <laughs> on a first doing, but I loved it still. And I think, I think that movie is, um, yeah, maybe it's hard to say it's underrated because I think a lot of people have like that movie has found its audience now. Yeah. It, it, I think I, overall I, it's underrated. Yeah. I, I love everything the Wachowskis have done. Like there's not, I, I'm meh on the sequels to the matrix, but everything. They have every, moments. It, they did. And I want to go back and revisit them because I, in retrospect, I think they did interesting things. I just wasn't feeling them at the time, but I loved, I even loved sense eight. 
I don't know if you watched their Netflix show. I haven't yet. Okay. I keep meaning to, and then I forget, and then I'm reminded, and then I forget. Yeah. It is, <laughs> it is, it is a movie that, like, talk about, like, a movie, or, or not a movie, a series that is just a lot. It is, I, I mean, I get people, com- be, keep people's complaints about it. I get it not being for everybody, but it had such a beautiful central metaphor and a beautiful way of expressing it these eight people yeah. around the world that are connected. And I, I was watching it a couple of years ago. And after a while, it got to a point where I cried in every episode and not, not because it was always sad, but because it was just like such a beautiful visual way of expressing what they're trying to do. Yeah. And I, I, I go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I, we don't have to talk too much about it. I, I just want to say the second season maybe gets a little bit too on the nose with its dialogue and what it's doing is like really hitting you over the head with a hammer, but it's, it's always earnest and it always believes what it's saying, which is something like I, I forgave it, even though the dialogue was really clunky at times. That I think is a perfect thing for, for Del Toro. That's what I was trying to say. Okay. It's like, sometimes his dialogue is too on the nose. Sometimes his dialogue is a little bit clunky and it's easy to laugh at, but like, he's also, you know, he's giving you a tapestry of emotion and I don't think dialogue is where his heart lives. Like, I mean, I think he, I think he likes good dialogue and he wants his characters to not sound like idiots. Uh, But you know, when you're conceiving of such a world, like not everything is going to be number one on your list. And I think he thinks about design and and the art direction and, you know, yeah, he, you know, we're going to make a haunted house maybe. Let's make the most haunted house. You know, that place is just, you know, you talk about the hallways. I was like, I was thinking about that watching. It's like, this is gorgeous and I would love this house. But like, of course it's haunted. Like you made it to be haunted. (laughs) Have you seen those, those criterion extras of him showing the inside of his house? Like he has that house that just has his collection of monsters and he has a room that it's always raining in. Um, I interviewed him years ago Oh, and he told me about, he's like, yeah, my office. He's like, it's always a dark and stormy night outside. Like, that's amazing. It, <laughs> it made me want him to adopt me. <laughs> like, right, was, yeah. I'm like, Oh, this is, this is amazing. Uh, the idea that like, and I mean, I don't mean for this to get become therapy, but like the idea that he's so comfortable with himself that he'll have a house of monsters and he's not at all embarrassed about it. Yeah. Like I'm embarrassed about so much of myself all the time. Mm. And like the idea of living with just that much comfort with oneself is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, 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 I get that. I get that. um i will i will say about his dialogue and how earnest and and uh maybe it's not his his biggest focus i think not a lot enough has talked about him as a writer because you look at the movies that he had a hand in the writing which is i think most of them or that he wrote out right i i think they're perfect for what he's trying to do yes maybe they're not Maybe they aren't the most nuanced. Maybe they aren't even the most realistic, but they're perfect for what he wants to do. And, yeah. and it seems like he's maybe the only one that knows how to translate that because you look at the stuff that he has written for other people and a lot of it is fine. A lot of it I really like, 
it doesn't capture what he's able to capture out of his own words. Right. Which Do I, I need mean, to maybe go back and read the strain. <laughs> What's that? Do I need to go back and read the strain? Have you watched the strain? I watched the, the first couple episodes. Okay, I read the first book and did not like it at all. <laughs> okay, uh, I I don't I I thought about like getting the audiobooks or something for the the trilogy. Um, I know it has its fans, but I just yeah. I did not care. It had all the things that he loves. I could see it being like a really sure. good Del Toro movie, but reading it on the page, it, it didn't work for me. Yeah. So you said something a little bit ago that I I didn't want to lose um or you know the, the the idea that like it's not for everybody but nothing is for everybody but like the stuff that is made like i'm i i like a, some marvel movies i like a lot for the most part i mean i see them all um i will i will go out of my way to see a marvel movie just if i like i remember like i think it was endgame I saw at like a 7 a.m. screening because I had to be on a flight later that morning. And I was just like, okay, I like, I'm going to do this because I know that my friends are going to talk about it and I want to be able to talk to my friends. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't love Marvel movies. You know, I, it's very easy for me to pick my favorites because mm -hmm. like Ragnarok like has a soul to it. Um, you know, Guardians has actual wit. Black Panther has a soul to it. Um, so like, but cause, uh, when we started getting reviews, when we started getting people on, on social media talking about ghost weights, you know, some people are just like, this is not for me. And a friend of mine asked me if, how that felt because I worked so hard on it and it's so personal. And I said, strangely, it's really easy. I don't take it personally at all because I'm very aware of the movie I made. I, I know what we did and it's not for everybody. I remember telling McLeod, like, you know, it's like there's a person, there are people out there this is for, and we just have to put it into rooms so that people can find it. But like, I feel like if everyone sees this, the vast majority will be like, ah. <laughs> because the ending, like, I feel like what we say at the ending is not going to ring with a lot of people. Um, you know, and we've had some concern about like, oh, are they romanticizing this thing? And it's like, yeah. no, 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 we're empathizing with a, with a societal taboo. And all it is, is like, I got to make a movie that, um, you know, there's a, there's a musical called Title of the Show and a song in it nine people's favorite thing. I'd rather be nine people's favorite thing than a hundred people's ninth favorite thing. Like that's what this is. A ghost weights is nine people's favorite thing. The fact that it's ended up being more than nine is crazy. Like, <laughs> so it's like Christmas. Um, but it made me a more forgiving viewer of films. And it also made me realize that like, I love when I can tell a filmmaker that I watched their movie and could tell that it's the movie they wanted to make. Because sometimes you watch one and you're like, oh, okay, that kind of feels like a compromise, or like, oh, they may like, they may have had to do like a half step or something. Um, but like, I just watched the stylist uh, last week or week before. I was telling Jill like, you watch the stylist, you're know, like, this is exactly the movie she wanted to make, you know. And like, there might be moments that don't work for me, but that's just me, and it doesn't have to, 
because every moment works for her. And there are people outside of her that every moment works for. And she made something that you can love. And that's beautiful. It's the highest calling of art. Yeah. You know, I'm genuinely overwhelmed by some people's reactions to the ghost weights. Um, I love it. I worked very hard on it and I love the movie. Uh, I'm so proud of what we did. But th I, that doesn't then mean like, oh, and everyone else will feel the same. It's like, no, no. Like I grew up being told I was wrong and should feel different things. You know, I'm very accustomed to people not being on my wavelength. So it's, it's kind of a miracle. Um, and Del Toro, and maybe it is Mimic, just like really blowing blowing up that part of him but it was just like i'm gonna make sure that i'm gonna tell stories with people that want to tell the stories that i want to tell and it can't just be about make, making money we're going to make money i will do things in a way that's accessible but like we're gonna make a kaiju movie that's about human connection <laughs> yeah well there is there is something to that that he's he's steadfastly only made movies that are his that are what he wants to do uh even Blade 2 doesn't quite feel like a compromise. Like he's clearly working in a, somebody else's mold, but he brings what he can to it and he's doing what he wants to do. Um, and even Mimic, I, I don't love Mimic, uh, there, but it's still, I think, a good movie. Like I think he still was able to yeah. bring enough to it that's him. Do you um, remember the first time you saw Hellboy 2 and like, you get to that village? Oh, or the marketplace. Yeah. It's the marketplace. The marketplace. Oh my that, god! Yeah, and he's. I, I know fans of Hellboy, and the creator were kind of displeased with that because he started to make Hellboy more of a Del Toro thing than a Mike Mignola thing, but it, it, it's it's clearly what he loves, and it's so in, visually impressive. Yeah, I, I I really like Hellboy too. Yeah, um, it's. I remember that being the first Blu-ray. I like. Uh, we bought the Blu-ray because it's just like, I just want to like relish the, you know, the resplendentness of that. Yeah. Sequence. No, that, that's, oh, God. that's a lot of movie. <laughs> um, it is. Yeah. But I will, I will say like looking at his filmography, how he'll go years between projects. He, he seems to be like, if he can't get a project made the exact way he wants to make it, he'll move on to something else. Like, Look at at the and, mountains of uh, madness. at the mountains of madness. Well, that breaks my heart that he couldn't get that budget with James Cameron and Tom Cruise. Yeah, and, um, and even the Hobbit. Like he spent so much time on the Hobbit, he lost years to the Hobbit. Yep. Which, speaking of which, there are two books That's fucking I want. Dedication. There are two Perfect. like making ofs I want, or or uh, like books, movie books that I want. I want mm -hmm. to see printed his notebooks from the Hobbit. That he like he said he he might use smog. He's been thinking about smog since he he was a kid, so he was really proud of that dragon design. Mm -hmm. I want to see those sketches, like they put on the supplements for his Criterion, the sketchbooks. I want to see those, and I want to see Yodorowsky's Dune book, that huge oh, yeah. book that he wrote and he put together yeah. with all the artwork in it. I would love to see like a reprint of that. But um, it's crazy to watch that documentary. It's just like this is a movie about a movie that didn't happen. Like, that happens quite a bit. <laughs> like, like, there's a lot. I know. Of those I mean, now. most movies don't happen. No, I mean, that, that's, <laughs> a, that's that's a very popular subgenre yeah. documentary these days. Is here's this movie that didn't happen. <laughs> uh, 
but uh, I don't know if Yodorowsky's yeah. doing. Well, I mean, now like the Snyder cut has convinced people that nothing's ever dead. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, man, fandom. We're not going to talk about that. It's fine. No, <laughs> uh, but just like Yodorowsky's Dune, like I don't know if I would have liked Dune. I'm a Lynch is maybe my favorite director, mm-hmm. and I do like Dune. I I I've loved it since I was a kid. Um, I don't know if I would have liked Yodorowsky's any better, but I'm glad we get that documentary. <laughs> it looks it's so really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so before, I, I think one last thing, or maybe there's more, but one thing we got to address is... Well, uh, we have to talk about the design of the ghosts. Yes, that's actually exactly what I was going to talk about. Okay, good. Because <laughs> those ghosts are amazing. They're really great. Doug Jones plays the... Um, the edith's mother like the kind of the okay well the, the edith's mother or doug jones plays kind of the um oh yeah yeah okay so doug jones plays edith's mom and lady sharp the okay two, two of the prominent ghosts in this movie but they look so good and there's a scene that got a genuine jump out of me i'm a, I'm, a, I'm a wimp i'm easy to startle but when she finds the uh, wax cylinders when she's opening that door and it like she like looks down the hall and looks back and there's the screaming ghost face that slams yeah. the door holy cow that got me this time uh it's so good and i will say one thing that i kind of don't like is that when he adds the scream to them that they all have that kind of like reach out and scream yeah and i get he's trying to make them scary but especially when we know that they're not trying to scare her, they're trying right. to impart, like say something. It it works fine with Edith's mom because you can see Edith's mom is kind of like reaching out for her daughter, trying yeah. to say something. Like, and it's, yeah. it's scary, but that's just because of how she appears. That's not necessarily yeah. what she's trying to do. The other ghosts, I, I kind of like. He does it at one point in Devil's Backbone as well where the ghost screams, but the ghost is yeah. clearly screaming with a different voice. Like it's, it, it's kind of like a stock scream. That moment is the one moment in the movie that didn't quite work for me. And mm. it's repeated in this one too, which it, it, it's fine. I, I mean, I can't judge a movie like that because it's like, it, it's what he wanted to do. It's just yeah. like what you were saying, where it just didn't quite work for me as well. Yeah. And like, that's quite possibly a, like a, a moment of a, compromise you know like he's working with a studio budget he's working with movie stars like he's working with this huge apparatus and when you're doing that you have to have you know uh it, it's funny when we were when we made a ghost wait like mcleod would have to remind me to put horror beats in because i just wasn't thinking about it so he's like you know stuff like the the bench moving you know out the window or the door opening behind them or anything it was all like mcleod was always like we have to give the audience information that jack doesn't have like that's what makes this kind of work and i was like oh right like so there's all this stuff in it where it was just, like it was just mccloud being like remember the movie we're making like oh yes 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 sir so i do think um i i do th- i do think there's an element of universal's putting a lot of money in and you, you need horror beats you need mainstream horror beats to 
you know, to try to bring, to try to connect to a more mainstream audience to make the money back. And that feels like a spot where he's comfortable. Like, obviously he'll, he'll, as we were just talking about, he'll walk away from a project if it doesn't feel like it's a, it's a project that he specifically will can do, but that feels like a thing where he's like, yeah, I can just, I can make a more, you know. And I think uh, it's totally, it's totally my sensibilities as well, where I said, I like the more haunting and the more like ethereal and Mm -hmm. stately type of horror where that, that blends or verges into just like kind of a almost jump scare territory in a way that I I kind of like, it has its place. I appreciate it. Not as much for me. Um, Part of me wonders if he could make, well, I mean, actually, I guess devil's backbone. (laughs) Cause I was like, I wonder if you could make it an innocence. You know, did you ever see the innocence? Oh yes. Okay. Like, I saw that at uh, Museum of the Moving Image a couple years ago, and you know you hear about it. It's like, oh, it's one of the scariest movies ever. It's a great horror film, and like watching it, it was just like, huh? Like, would not have thought to call this like. It's very good, obviously, and then it gets to the ending, and I was like, yeah. oh, okay, <laughs> because it's not a movie concerned with jump scares, or it's not a modern horror. You know, it's much more about building to a dread building to something that is just fundamental human terror. And that I find fascinating because I, I think we, we did, a, a, we tried to do a similar thing with the ghost weights is like, I want to say something that if you engage with, like the horror is like, Oh God, like, right. People have to deal with this. And um yeah, I I wonder, I, I, and I guess Devil's Backbone has 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 more of that. It does. It's much more classic. It's yeah, you know, much more classic horror. Well, uh, whereas now he's like, oh, I've got to make a modern horror film. So jump scares. I I do want to say that this movie shares a cosmology with Devil's Backbone. It feels like it maybe takes place in the same type of universe. The way the ghosts work is very similar. They have that same floating blood. Yes. Uh, and yeah. cracked porcelain look. Or in this one, it's clay, because that's what they're in there, like red, runny clay. Um, Aside from uh, Thomas Sharp, who we see at the end, because they both end with a male male figure that has just died coming back at a pivotal moment and doing not much, like not much else other than uh, like kind of aiding the heroes, but they're kind of Mm -hmm. just there aiding through their their appearance. and they each have the moment where the blood is floating in the air and somebody reaches out and like kind of plays with it in their fingers. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, it, in Devil's Backbone, I thought that was just because you died in water and you're supposed to look like the blood is floating out into the water. In this, it appears to be, that's just how ghosts in his, his world work, which I yeah. am fine with. I think they all look terrific in this. But no, I mean, yeah, it's so great. And like, especially watching these two kind of together, you know, it, it kind of highlights, it, it, it's a very good um, illustration of just like the breadth of what he can do as a filmmaker. And it, I feel like it watching devil's backbone makes crimson peak feel more essential because it is him just like, okay, I, I, I need to tell a different ghost story. Yeah. And I love when she says it's not a ghost story. It's a story with a ghost in it. Cause it's like, well, anything that's in your story is that story. Like, it's like saying it's not a crime story. It's a story with crime in it. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, people are going to remember the crime. Yeah, <laughs> but then it is. It's like it's her story, and ghosts are a part of it. 
I, th I think it's, a, I think both movies are pretty beautiful genre works. Yeah, no, they're definitely great. I, I love both of them. Um, I think that gives us a good, a good wrapping up spot. We can kind of wind down and, and, yeah. and wrap up. Uh, I know you are pretty busy right now, so I'm not going to take up any more of your time, but do you have anything you want to say, like just remind people uh, where we can watch uh, yeah, Ghost Waits? Uh, what's going on with that? This will be coming uh, out. Um, what's the date? Next Friday. It'll be. Yeah, it's the, the first. Okay. Nope, it, the 30th. It, okay. okay, that's what I thought. It'll be coming out. This will be coming out Friday the 30th. Yeah. Um, dear listeners, the movie is called A Ghost Waits. Uh, you can find uh, on, on social media, we have, I have a Twitter at Adam Stovall. McLeod has a Twitter at McLeod Andrews, M-A-C-L-E-O-D. And then the movie itself has one at A Ghost Waits. We have a website at ghostweights.com. Um, the movie comes out on May 4th here in the States, May 3rd uh, over in the UK. If you are a physical media uh, creature, we have put together a beautiful Blu-ray for you. It looks really good. It sounds really good. And I busted my ass to put a bunch of special features on there to make it worth your 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 money. Uh, if you're not, uh, it is going to be available on TVOD sites. For, uh, and I know on iTunes, it's $3. We would very much appreciate you pre-ordering the film uh, because if... Uh, if we get enough people to watch it at $3, that'll put us up into the top 10 and help this movie have uh, even more legs than it already incredibly has. Yeah, Thank I, you for yeah, bringing I, me on. Oh, like, you're very welcome. Thank you for coming on. This was a delight. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. This was really Movies fun. of this size, like we rely on word of mouth. We live and die by word of mouth. And you know, that you want to share with, with people, uh, the film, it, it, it really means a lot, honestly. Yeah, no, I, I recommend this people to a couple of people. Um, I just, I pre-ordering my copy today, uh, really looking Thank forward you. to getting it in. I'm really excited about the extras. Um, and I recommend it to everybody listening. I think everybody listening would, it would enjoy this. I think it is worth your time to at least rent it. If you're, if you're a listener of this show. Yeah. And, um, and I think if you're listening and you, you have a, an abiding desire to make a movie, go make it. Um, you don't need a ton of money. Uh, and you don't always need to know what you're doing. Honestly, <laughs> like we, there's been so many times when people will point something out to me about the film, like, Oh, that's so great. And it's just like, I had no idea that was there. Like, that's so, like, I'm, you guys make me sound so smart. Um, no, I really like it's, I did this, this was a desperate act. I was in a really bad place when I wrote the movie and it has fundamentally changed my life and opened things up uh, that I, I really don't, I don't know that I ever thought I'd get to do. So, you know, if you, if you want to create, go create. If you just appreciate creation and like, then do that, like whatever, find your piece, you know? Find your peace wherever it lies, because life is so much richer um, once you feel like you have a place in the world. That is a very lovely moment to end on. So we'll we'll call it there. Thank you very much for doing this. I had a great time talking to you. Um, <clears throat> look forward to what you've got coming next and seeing, you know, more of your stuff. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm trying to clear my throat. Yeah. <clears throat> so maybe yeah. I sound like I'm getting choked up. Hopefully we could talk about a time travel movie next time and we'll get into that whole bag of tricks. Oh yes. <laughs> I would, I would love to, to, I would love to. Um, 
As for me, if you're listening to this and maybe this is your first time, maybe somebody is new to the show, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Two Headed Pod. I'm also on Instagram and there's a Facebook page. I got to be honest, I'm most active on Twitter, but I try and do stuff on all the others. And oh, yeah, I do have a Facebook page. I always forget about that. (laughs) Yeah, most people are forgetting about it these days. Yeah. Uh, If you've enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes or wherever this you got this show. It's available most places. Please rate, review and subscribe. Uh, It does help. And that'll be it for us. We will see you next week. Thank you all for joining.